Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening in the future. I am Paul, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Dirk and Denis. Before we get into the chit-chat, I wanted to give a shout-out to a few fans uh, to thank you for your feedback on the show. Uh, Mariel F. and Michael R., thanks a lot for the, uh, for the um, kind words, and we'll keep working on it. Hello, Dirk and Denny. How's it Howdy. going? Hello. What's happening? What's new? What you been doing? Let's go H before beauty. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, I think that was aimed at me. <laughs> I think so, and you're older than me, so a lot. Yeah, just been scowling out the window. The temperature has dropped and the snow is flying. And uh, Nice. Me and my buddies, uh, you know, maybe we're stupid or just, you know, hopelessly romantic, but we're hoping to get at least one more motorcycle ride in uh, before the end of the year. But, uh, you know, when you're getting a high of three or four, and I was... Head, heading down to the store this afternoon, and I seen a motorcycle coming at me on a Harley. It was four degrees, and he went whizzing by me, and I looked at him and says, okay, now that's cold. I know that's cold. <laughs> I think it's seven here today. And sunny. And, uh, yeah, it's nice when the sun shines, but you can't even count on that. So, yeah, besides cussing out the weather and uh, uh, trying to work behind the scenes to try to get the uh, fire protection legislation in Nova Scotia amended, make more sense bring it into the 21st century so you know working with little initiatives here and there on that so there's a there's a lot of things going on and uh, you know there's never enough time in the day like I've, like i've said before i don't know how i ever managed when i was working full time <laughs> yeah yeah the uh, rural municipalities association of alberta passed a resolution uh to um pursue the government for better planning response etc for wildland fires that are not in what's called in alberta the green zone so they're not the responsibility of the province or the responsibility of the municipalities and so they've actually put forward a resolution to the province so they're going to to uh, start to make some better plans and stuff i told them you got to follow like california oes or something you got to get some some pre predisposition of apparatus and equipment and training and so we'll see where that goes i see uh, uh bc i think did something similar uh, recently uh, with their new emergency planning uh legislation so maybe that'll come down east uh, one day yeah here planning is is a massive issue i mean like like in the municipality where I live, they haven't updated their emergency plan since 2017. Yeah, ouch. Even though the, their local legislation says they must review it and update it annually. Right, so, and, change the phone numbers. And like, <laughs> like seriously? <laughs> and it yeah. showed. Yeah. This summer, it showed. We don't want to trigger, trigger you or anything. And uh, people died. 
hopefully it uh, it can get improved. You've been uh, doing any social media, travel, watching movies, reading books? Me? Yeah. <laughs> Who no. has time for that stuff? Oh, okay. All right. He doesn't have time. He just said that. <laughs> I know. I know. How about you, Dirk? What have you been doing? Working uh I went to uh, the Pacific Northwest Fire Conference and on uh, Bainbridge Island, which is right across the bay from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to see Seattle in the far, far distance, a few of the high rises on the way back. Uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, place. Um, the whole island it has a very uh, Vancouver Island feeling to it. So yep. pretty cool. Uh, conference was amazing. Uh, three days, unfortunately, all uh, all classroom stuff, all. Um, lectures but it, it was good it was uh, nice to uh, to uh, meet some of these guys that are you know I've, I've been listening to on podcasts and stuff like that and watching videos and uh, just meeting people from all over the place uh, a lot of Tacoma firefighters down there too mm-hmm. that's pretty cool they were saying uh, Tacoma FD is actually a documentary I didn't know that oh okay <laughs> that, that show I don't know if you guys ever watched it it's nope. uh, it's 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 a certified comedy, unlike uh, all the other nine one one shows. Okay, <laughs> that are also comedies, just not certified. <laughs> well, yeah, they are, but they're not immediately comedies, and that's that's why they're saying that the Coma FD is actually a documentary. Um, so it's pretty funny. Uh, no, it was uh, overall fantastic. Lots of information, um, all kinds of uh, presentation, like search, fire attack, uh, building construction. Um, Jerry, uh, was Jerry Johnson, I think it's Jerry Johnson from uh, Vancouver. Um, no, James Johnson, that's it. Uh, James Johnson was there. Uh, so I met him for the first time there. And uh, Justin McWilliams did awesome presentation on search. And uh, that's not a death wish. It's just really cool stuff. Uh, we talked about the firefighter rescue survey a lot. Uh, all the numbers and what we can do with them and, and selling our wins and not just our losses because that's what most administrations do, right? We had, I don't know, X amount of uh, fire fatalities, uh, fire losses. And instead of going the negative, well, why don't we just sell our wins? How many people we actually saved uh, rescue? Well, it's kind of like the grabs, like that grab. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, the Benchels, uh, one of them. Yeah involved uh, uh brian brush and all these guys so i think with yeah we had ben schultz doing a presentation on on that and also just uh tweaking our brains on um uh the alpinist approach to uh firefighting instead of the uh day-long uh, adventure approach like you take everything you need just in case mm-hmm. but we are really at a scene for a few hours do we really have to carry all this crap with us and just uh, no gear, uh, talking about uh, TPP um, and uh, thermal protection ratings. Ratings, yeah, that there, there's a difference, right? And uh, what you want, what you need. Uh, we have more and more guys dropping like flies in the hot weather, just standing outside, not even fighting fires because we are wearing gear that's supposed to protect us for that once in a lifetime fire. And now we're teaching everybody to use copious amounts of water to cool everything. So, do we really need? that super protective gear but it's hard to go back right because it's all oh, it's safety uh, we approach the, the industry way, yeah. to get better with our uh, our mask and our gear and our flash or, but then uh, we also encapsulating us more and more and more for that one time being in the fire so um it was an in- interesting discussion uh, 
about that. So that was, that was cool. Yeah, just really cool conference. So I'm looking forward to going next year. They want to expand. Annual, to, yep. Yeah, they want to expand to five days, I think, with hands-on training. Nice. So uh, we'll, we'll see if that's going to happen. But uh, yeah, presentations were fantastic. Um, Chief Dick Martin from, let's see, Virginia, North Carolina, somewhere. I'm, I'm really... Uh, mixing these guys up. But Nick Martin did an awesome presentation on aggressive command, supporting aggressive firefighting, and uh, just the mindset of how approach and uh, makes everything safer and, and training. And um, that, that was a big part. And then mental health was also a big part. So yeah, it was all around, was a very well-rounded uh, uh, conference. It was almost 300 firefighters attended. Nice, what was it called again? I was the Pacific Northwest Fire Conference, okay. PNW. Uh, it was by uh, the Fire Nuggets. Okay. Fire Nuggets so, is coming from the podcast. Pacific Northwest there. Uh, nice. Fire Nuggets podcast, and they, they got a website where we have all the presentations uh, and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, it was a lot of fun. It's interesting comment on um, Celebrate Our Saves because, uh, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about and doing about for many years. And, and it, what brought that to my attention was, you know, you, you spent $8 million on your fire department budget in a year, and you had $4 million on fire losses. And so counselors would look at you and say, it cost us $8 million to save $4 million. It says, well, let's not bother having a fire department because we'd save $4 million. But of course, that's not recognizing what was saved. You know, what would it have been? So that's why it's important when your fire reports actually identify the value of the exposures. And so if you had a $20 million building and you had a $500,000 fire loss, um, and by the time all your recovery and your cleaning and everything was done, maybe it's a million dollar loss, you saved how many yeah. million? You know? yeah. And what would the outcome have been if you hadn't have been there? Yeah, Phoenix, uh, Phoenix Fire about oh, it's got to be 20 years ago, maybe longer, uh, did a study. And it was the impact of not fighting commercial fires. Uh, what would it cost? And they had a really good study. I should, I'll try to find a link to it or something and put it in social media. But it showed the, the community, the business, the economic impact of not fighting uh, commercial fires in the, in the community. And it was staggering, uh, the numbers that, you know, yeah. people. But there's no concept because we... We just yeah. do it, right? Uh, yeah. And then you try to sell. And I had this discussion a couple of days ago, actually, about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, everybody was, uh, well, the fire department, you need to be like a business. You run it like a business. And, I, and there's no business in it. It's it's loss prevention. It's risk management. Yeah. It's not going to make a profit. Yeah, uh, it's you know, like the life insurance. It's cost of doing yeah. business. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, used to, I remember getting into those debates. Yeah. So you need fire department management and, and, and budget managers who can talk the talk, understand all this, and get that message across to the governing authorities. Mm -hmm. But it trickles down even further because I've known many fire officers who, you know, they were asked to estimate the loss and the value of the building. They just get all annoyed and frustrated and says, ah, I can't be bothered doing that, whatever. They just throw some number in because they don't really appreciate because nobody has had that conversation with them so that they do appreciate that that is their bread and butter mm -hmm. because without that information, really very difficult to sell the value of the service they provide Absolutely. and it's critical right down to the bottom you know of the organization to understand that it's all about service and it's all about you know recording what you do and gathering information 
Yeah, and yeah, the, the whole point of this firefighter rescue survey by, uh, from Brian Brush um, was also he based he read through the book um, America's Burning from mm -hmm. the 70s, yep. right? And compare the numbers with today's fire service. And uh, sure, fires are down because back then they were just skyrocketing. Uh, I mean, that's just you know, the, the highest it will ever get. Um, but they, he looked at the fire victims and uh, the fire victim number didn't go down in the last 50 years. Even though we have advancement in internal gear and uh, trucks and all this stuff. And uh, so the, the question was, why, why is this? Why, uh, why don't we save more people? Right. And then some of the things are like, uh, well, if you only send two guys on an engine to a fire, yeah, you have a fire department, but they're not going to be able to do much except for exterior, exterior water. So um, that was an interesting take. Like, uh, I think he wrote this, is he a doctor now? thesis he wrote a thesis on something he's a chief now so he's very smart like you guys um nice. oh, oh. <laughs> no nah. anyhow that was very interesting and just to see that the numbers don't don't go down right and then uh, he started this rescue survey which is freely available online everybody can download it and there's quite a few departments now adopting this as an attachment to the company officer report uh, because if you are present at a rescue then we want to know was it ideal age like uh what, what kind of a building was it what structure was it who else what was involved visibility like all this stuff so that you get actually get data and that you can work with and then uh base your search patterns on it and so yeah that was yeah, super super I, I, we shouldn't belabor it i guess and get on with the episode but uh but <laughs> you can edit but, all this out <laughs> but but no it's it's good stuff and maybe a tailboard talk i remember fighting here in Lacombe with the county uh, when the city wanted to buy a ladder truck and uh, the county was dead against it. They didn't even want to sign a, a grant application to get a hundred grand from the province for it because, well, we're in the county, we don't need a ladder truck. And, and I gave him a couple of examples, you know, I said, okay, so the air conditioning on the roof of your brand new shop that you built to maximum code without sprinklers. So you didn't have to put sprinklers in. Uh, and you say, well, yeah, we don't care if you come here or not because, you know, it'll, it'll just burn. You don't want us to put that out, you know, right? It's just an air conditioning unit, but you're going to let the building burn or the bulldozer in the shop catches fire or the electric, who knows what car they're going to buy. Uh, don't get me going on electric stuff. But anyway. Uh, you know, uh, we, you, you don't want to put it out. And then we had a big fire, uh, 37 below uh, machine shed and potato storage barn. And the only thing that saved that, that building was the aerial that we brought out. And uh, it was able to, to stop the fire uh, inside the building that was, because uh, you couldn't get at it. It's a concrete tilt up building that's 30 feet high. And you really couldn't do a lot with hand lines at 37 below. Uh, it just blows my mind that these guys are like, well, we don't need that, right? Yeah, it's cost cost benefits, right? Yep. Okay. okay. Excellent discussion. What have I been doing? Oh, uh, I've been doing some exercises, been doing some teaching, been reading some books. I'm reading uh, not those kind of exercises, uh, the uh, you know emergency exercises, and uh, and then I've also I'm reading I'm reading uh, Russia, the 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 Battle of Tsushima Straits, where the Russian fleet got annihilated by the Japanese in 1905. Uh, it's a quite an interesting story to think of, of how far they went with a whole bunch of ships and, and fought battles and, you know, coal and stuff. So that's been pretty interesting. Anyway, this week's incident, 
on November 18th, 2022. So the reason I did this one, it's fairly recent, uh, merely a year ago, uh, at about 1511 local time, uh, flight 220 or 2213 of LATAM Airways, which was an Airbus A320 airplane, collided with Rescue 3 at the airport in Lima, Peru. Rescue 3 was a 2012 Rosenbauer Panther 4x4 aircraft rescue firefighting apparatus on the runway uh, during a timed emergency training exercise. The aircraft was carrying 102 passengers and six crew. It was at approximately 1,200 meters into its takeoff run, traveling at about 230 or 43 kilometers per hour when the impact occurred. Two firefighters and the fire engine were killed instantly, and another suffered severe serious injuries, which he succumbed to six months later because of the impact. There were no fatalities on the aircraft, although 22 people were treated in hospital. Uh, the pilots and crew performed an extremely effective, difficult recovery maneuver and safe evacuation of the aircraft and passengers. In spite of some additional equipment failures uh, that were not related to the incident, uh, one of the escape slides on the front of the plane did not inflate uh, when it was when the door was opened, and there may have been a failure to activate a system that would have made it inflate, but that's not why it didn't inflate. It actually had a broken or a crimped hose. So these things, these things can happen in emergencies, of course. The fire apparatus was significantly, significantly damaged beyond repair, and actually the aircraft was also written off due to the impact and post-fire damage. Okay. Okay, I'm going to butcher this now. The location was the... Go ahead, Denis. Jorge Chavez. Jorge Chavez International Airport is Lima's main international air and domestic airport, located in Cayo, Cayo. Uh, 11 kilometers northwest of Lima. The airport opened in 1960, serves about 5 million passengers per year, although it's a single turn through its single terminal, terminal. It is one of South America's most modern and busiest airports. Actually, I talked to some friends of mine who, who've been through there and, and traveled to South America quite a bit, and they've talked about this airport. The airport's been operated by Lima Airport Partners since 2001 with a 30-year contract, which is 80% owned by Fraport AG of Germany. I didn't know about this Fraport, but they operate a lot of airports uh, around the world, Dirk. Uh, kind of interesting. Because they are so efficient. Aha, uh -huh, so efficient because they're German. They, they know how to cross the I's and dot the T's. Okay. A major airport expansion project is underway at the airport since 2018. Uh, they're building a second 3,400-meter main runway 10 kilometers of new taxiways, a new terminal, a new control tower, a new fire station, which is important later. The size of the airport is expanding from 2 million square meters to 9 million square meters, planning to serve up to 30 million passengers annually when completed sometime in 2023. And actually, I believe it was completed and opened in, in April or August of, of 2023. And, and the whole construction thing is a theme in, in what happened to, uh, to this, well, how this incident occurred. So just for those people who don't understand uh, square meters of buildings, just multiply by 10 to get square feet. So 9 million square meters is 90 million square feet. That's a, a pretty big building. It's a big area. Not a building, you know, it's, that's the area. The, yeah. The airport yeah. footprint. Okay. So a little, a little bit about the airport emergency services. So the uh, aircraft rescue firefighting services have been 
you know, serve the airport on a 24-7, 365 basis. So it's a, it's a full-time service. They work 12-hour shifts um, from 7 till 7. So 0700 to uh, 1900, 1900, 0700. And uh, on duty in those uh, following staff, uh, there's a, I, I guess this is actually the entire um, administration as there's a chief and a coordinator and then there's uh, three general supervisors, three rescue supervisors, and 45 aircraft firefighters. So that's their entire staff. And uh, on any one of those operational shifts, there's a general supervisor, who I guess is the overall boss, a rescue supervisor, who's uh, obviously in charge of the, uh, the operational crews, and then 12 aircraft firefighters who are broken down as follows. One is assigned uh, to coordinate from the control tower, Three are apparatus operators for the ARFF, which stands for Airport Rescue and Firefighting Vehicles. Uh, those, those would be those Rosenbauers uh, that uh, um, Paul had mentioned. And then there were three officers on those trucks and then a five assigned as crews. Um, not all of the uh, apparatus were uh, ARF vehicles. Some of them are other vehicles. So the fleet is um, Rescue 1 and Rescue 2 a Rosenbauer Panther FL 6x6s. Rescue 3 and Rescue 4 are Rosenbauer Panther FL 4x4s. Um, Heavy Rescue 5 is a Rosenbauer Spartan command post, uh, like a rescue truck. And uh, Rescue 6 and 7 are Nissan Frontier Utility Service Apparatus, basically uh, pickup trucks. At the time of the incident, the aircraft rescue and firefighting services was operating out of an old or existing fire station. And the new fire station had not yet been turned over from the construction contractors um, for uh, ongoing operations at the airport. Um, this will become important later because it's actually one of the reasons this incident occurred is, is because there's gonna be a new fire hall. Well, we'll talk about a little bit of training and experience of the uh victims involved so victim one was a uh, was rescue three engineer 45 years old 11 years firefighting experience victim number two um rescue three co-engineer yeah i don't know why they old. didn't define yeah, him as an sure. officer yeah yeah uh 30 years old six years firefighting experience and victim number three uh was a firefighter for 23 years old and 15 months on the job, so barely all of his rookie year. Um, the aircraft, uh, November 18th, 2022, the A320N operated by the company LATAM Airlines Peru SA was scheduled to carry out flight LPE 2213 from the Jorge Javes International Airport. <laughs> and here's where I'm gonna be starting, Juliaca Airport, with an estimated takeoff time at 2.55 p.m. local time. Uh, so the crew of the aircraft was uh, two, a pilot and a first officer. They had a cabin crew uh, of four, a boss, and three assistants. I thought they were called uh, flight attendants. Per, per no. sir. <laughs> yeah. And 102 passengers and the takeoff weight of 61,642 kilograms, uh, whatever that is in uh, imperial pounds, but uh, pretty heavy. 30 some tones. Yeah. So it's heavy. It, it, it was, uh, 
almost 19,000 pounds or 18,000 pounds under its maximum weight, so it wasn't overloaded. Just to mention that the, this script we actually translated using Google Translate from Portuguese to English, so uh, some of the I had, a, I had quite a struggle generating a, generating a readable English script from the extremely technical aviation document investigation to a script that we could present on the podcast. So there there might be a few glitches here and there. Uh, preceding events and conditions, uh, as I, we mentioned, the airport has been undergoing a significant expansion with multiple construction projects underway since 2018. Several of these projects were nearing completion, including new runways and the new fire station. For everybody's information, uh, aviation rescue and firefighting is regulated by a couple of organizations, so the FAA or Federal Aviation Administration in the United States and the International Civil Aviation Organization, otherwise known as ICAO, for much of the rest of the world. Trivial fact is that ICAO's headquartered is in Montreal. And so it's sort of a Canadian entity just happens to be there, um, has been there for a very long time. Aviation response requirements for our, for aircraft fire, rescue firefighting, they have stringent re response time requirements based on the time of notification to reaching the end of the main runways of the airport. They must reach it within three minutes. That is pretty quick uh, from time of call to arrival. Um, and uh, this has been a big problem in the ARF apparatus industry for many years, because how do you get an apparatus this large to go that fast and keep it on the road? Uh, if you've ever looked at an ARF apparatus, they're often very large and off-road capable. They can carry up to 6,000 liters of water plus foam and dry chemicals. They carry enough foam for two loads of water. So they can actually be refilled and then they still have enough foam for another tank load. Um, they have a defined gradeability of 50%. So that's climbing a 26.7 degree slope. I've actually done these tests and uh, I got involved in some uh, small airport crash trucks uh, down in uh, down with Emergency One when I was a product manager for them. And we were building what they call RIVs, rapid intervention vehicles. And so they were basically modified Ford F550 Super Duty trucks. And we had to do all these tests with them. And they were, it was, yeah, it's, it's kind of spectacular to climb these hills and stop and back up. And they have to be able to operate with opposite wheels, 10 to 14 inches elevated on blocks uh, and not bend the frame, not damage any components which is similar to the uh, wildland apparatus test uh, down in the States or NFPA. They have to have acceleration. This is the tricky one here. Acceleration, 0 to 80. So, yeah, that's fine. It's only 50 miles an hour or 45. But uh, in less than 25 to 35 seconds, depending on the size of the apparatus. And they must be all-wheel drive. Uh, they have a minimum top speed of 113 kilometers per hour, which most of your modern fire apparatus today doesn't do that, even in the cities. Uh, that's the, the high end of, of their top speed. Uh, these have to be able to do it certified. Uh, they have to be stable on a side slope of 30 degrees, and they have to turn within a 46 meter radius at 48 kilometers per hour. I've done this test drive in an F-550 and it is scary. You, you think you're going to roll the truck over. I can't imagine doing it in one of the, the big crash trucks. They're very complex machines with very high powered and sophisticated drivetrains to meet the acceleration performance requirements with a vehicle that weighs anywhere from 50 to 90,000 pounds. 
fact, uh, they need to drive fast and overcome difficult terrain and also be agile and sure-footed. In the addition, what makes them very complex is that the flick of a switch, while still driving, they can engage the fire pump and pump and roll in either forward or reverse and properly mix and proportion foam concentrate and water solution and apply it through various remote controlled nozzles at a very high capacity of three to 6,000 liters a minute uh, of foam solution. So they carry enough foam concentrate, as I mentioned, for two tanks of water. Um, these, these trucks are, are quite fun to play with and interesting to work. So if you think of your, your basic big four-wheel drive farm tractor out in the field combining or pulling a plow, that is actually what the power, how the powertrain operates in the modern uh, fire arf truck. Uh, used to be a lot of them had two engines, one for pumping and one for, one for driving, but uh, that was obviously takes up space and weight and everything. So they have these extremely sophisticated transmissions that when you turn the pump on, the foot, the gas pedal turns into a modulator valve and it modulates your forward or rearward momentum keeping a fixed rpm on the engine at the same time so that you have good foam and, and water pumping performance it's quite sophisticated twin disc is one of the major builders of these transmissions uh, i have a little story here about a arf truck and engines on on arf trucks the old ones had dual engines and then for many years um, they would run sort of a straight pipe no muffler uh, Non-EPA, so no environmental controls on them, engines modified to meet the performance requirements for the airports. Uh, we were, I was doing a, a fire chief show in, in Quebec City back in the early 90s or mid 90s. And we'd had, we had an ARF truck for the, for the show. It was Mirabelle Airport's ARF truck. And so they agreed to let us borrow it for the show. Now, Quebec City, the it's a, it's a seaport town. It's on the river. It's quite hilly. Uh, we had the uh, crash truck trucked to a unloading area in the port, and then the convention centers on the top of the hill up in the city, and therefore we had to move the crash truck on the road. Uh, and so myself and my my dealer, I think Denny, you you maybe knew uh, Robert Traversy a little bit. I did. He's retired, lives on Nuns Island in Montreal. He was driving, and I was chasing in the rental car. And it was a early June sunny Sunday morning at about seven o'clock in the morning we're climbing the hills of quebec city with a straight pipe detroit diesel like silver 8b92 and uh the smoke and the noise was deafening and we disturbed a lot of people so uh these things uh back then we would have said that was awesome yeah, yeah I, I i thought we thought it was awesome too um <clears throat> i have a i have a similar story but i was in the driver's seat Ah, yeah. Three across, and you drove from the middle, and I drove it through town on Sunday morning for a show and shine. 8V92 silver straight pipe. Yep. There you go. Same what thing. What a racket. I thought it was going to fall over. It felt uh, like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had to get this truck inside the, the Quebec City Convention Center, and it was an extremely tight fit. And poor Robert, and he's like five foot nothing. Uh, he's driving this thing, and we're, it's inches. And we had to do like the 30 point turn just to move every maneuver. It took forever. His arms were so sore after, I don't think he could pick up a glass after we put that truck in there. But anyway, uh, just a little story.
Uh, now, due to the emission requirements, these apparatus are running huge 16-cylinder diesel engines with outputs in the 1,000 horsepower range. The newer emission-compliant engines are much heavier and much more complex, which, is, which has changed the trucks to, to need a lot of horsepower to meet the 3-minute the rule. In order to meet the three-minute response time to the under the runways, driver training and testing and, and skill building, skill development is also a critical factor. And this is exactly what was occurring during when this accident happened. They were doing emergency timed training runs. The annals of rolled over airport firefighting crash trucks or ARF trucks is long. They frequently get rolled over while trying to respond to drills and or crashes. And because they, they go so fast and then you got to turn a corner and they're top heavy. And so training the drivers is a, is a key thing. Maneuvering is, uh, is very tricky. So a critical engineer skill. The ICAO requirements also state that the fire station must be in proximity to the control tower and minimal turns should be planned for emergency vehicles to reach the main runways, which is, makes sense. There was only one 90-degree turn required for emergency vehicles to negotiate onto the main runways at Lima, Peru. And it's a you can take it fairly gently because it's a very wide runway, so you don't have to turn sharply like in a, in a downtown area. Due to the new fire station and the runways, the emergency services for the airport had been doing limited emergency or timed emergency response tests called ETRs from both the existing fire station and the new fire station that was located near the new control tower. Over several months for both confirmation of the theoretical design times, so they've already figured this out, you know, on paper that it would work, but then they were doing it to prove it and also to train their people and get familiar with the new, the new roadways and those kind of things. During construction, though, there were frequent detours and blocked taxiways or access points, often defined with cones or pylons. At the time of the accident, the new fire station and the control tower were actually not in operation, and they were still under control of the construction contractor. So of, of interest, you can actually uh, Google this airport. It's on uh, go to Google Earth, and uh, you can see the airport. You can see it's still under construction. It says it's 2023. Um, images, but I suspect they're 2022 images. You can you can see the runway where the incident happened. It's on the right. Um, you can also see the new control tower, and you can see the new fire hall. It's not labeled, but you can see two of these uh, panthers sitting out on the apron in front of the fire hall. So you can you can spot it. It's all there on Google Earth, and it's yeah, quite I'm interesting. Good. You can see where the incident happened. You can see it's right there. I've got some pictures and stuff from the report that I'm going to throw on social media when we publish. So have maps and and they have. I actually have live footage of these trucks driving out there uh, because everything in the control tower is taped and they have little icons and show where they are mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's also interesting to go to the Rosenbauer site and uh, have a look at at, at uh, these panthers. But um, they're pretty sophisticated. But I, sh I would caution you that this particular one is a 2012, and apparently there was some significant changes in the cab, particularly the visibility for the driver and so forth. So it doesn't mention that that's contributory in this incident, but it might have been where they did not see this airplane coming right at them. Yeah. And it's, it seems odd to me that they didn't. But, but they were turning right, and the airplane came from behind them. Yeah. So. So leading up to this, so they had to uh, go through some emergency response training, ETR. Uh, uh, they were performed leading up to this. Uh, the details were um, 
They were all carried out from the old in-service fire station and took place only on taxiways without entering the main runways. And this will, of course, be important. Like everything we mentioned, it's going to be important. <laughs> Later. Yep. <laughs> so the ETR, uh, February 27th, uh, 2022. I'm just going to fly through this here because they, they get quite a few exercises with their um, off units. Rescue 2, Rescue 3, Rescue 1 participated. Um, the rescue supervisor attended the control tower to observe, which is obviously a requirement. Uh, the control tower determined the destination and direction of the exercise, and the RF units traveled along the taxiways following the direction to the tower controls. So then uh, uh, in April, so that one was in February, next one was in April, also three units, rescue three, two, and one participated. There was no evidence that the emergency services representatives attended the control tower to observe, which is apparently a requirement. Uh, the control tower determined the destination and directed the exercise. The off units traveled along the taxiway following direction to the tower uh, controllers, and two of the three off vehicles individually requested entry to the taxiways, individually reviewing the instructions, complying with directions to stay off the main runways, at all times and this will be important it's generally accepted and enforced practice that all vehicles and aircraft must obtain clearance and direction from the surface controller in the control tower before entering any active taxiway and or runway at all times which kind of makes sense uh next exercise in june again rescue three two and one uh, rescue personnel attended the control tower to observe this time Control tower determined the destination and directed the exercise. Uh, the off units traveled along the taxiway following directions to the tower. So same as before, uh, two of the three off vehicles individually requested entry to the taxiway and individually reviewing the instructions. And then the, uh, is that the last exercise? I think in October, um, again, rescue two, three, and one. The rescue chief this time and the supervisor attended the control tower um, and it observed uh, the control tower determined the destination direction of the exercise and the RF units traveled along the taxiway just like they did before. So on August 17th, 2022, there was another ETR performed, this time from the location of the new fire station and onto the main runaway. The recorded ETR time was 2 minutes and 48 seconds. There were no official observations of this event. It was just logged. On November 15th, a meeting was held discussing the uh, timeline for opening of the new fire station and runway, scheduled for January 2023. It was decided to perform another ETR on November 17th, 2022. So coordinating of timing of the next ETR was done between the various tower and emergency service personnel via telephone and emails. It was decided to hold the ETR on November 18th between 15 and 1600 hours. An email was sent to the duty staff regarding the ETR with some details indicating it would be from the new station and onto the old, still active runway. The runway runs parallel to or the runways run parallel to each other with the new terminal controller and fire station between them. So the rescue supervisor called the tower shift supervisor at 1300 hours to review the planned ETR. This tower person was unaware of the planned ETR. So they reviewed the plans orally and agreed. There was a shift change of tower personnel at 1500 hours, which led to some lack of communication 
about the planned ETR from where and to where, which road, etc. Um, there are four tower controllers on duty at all times situated in a wide semicircle in the tower with a supervisor in the rear of the others. So there was a shift supervisor, supervisor controller, aerodrome controller, surface controller, authorization controller. And just off the record here, this is like, it's amazing how these airports work. Uh, this air traffic control, all this stuff. And then you throw in some emergency uh, vehicles. It's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time. My brother-in-law was a, airport firefighter in Saskatoon so I used to go there and and I actually rode rode out with them and and tried fighting fires with the trucks and stuff like that and and it it was fascinating to uh to learn how it all meshes together works yeah very carefully yeah so the uh, rescue supervisor called the tower at 1501 on the radio using call sign rescue six though he was actually in rescue seven to request permission to move traffic cones blocking access to the main runway from the new fire station uh, from the new fire station approach roadway uh, which was done there was uh, there have been many some well i'm confused just by reading this <laughs> there has been some confusion which cones were removed so they had to move them right and and that's also something very interesting when when you are at the airport you see all these road markings and where they have to stay, they got those little stanchions and flashing lights. It's it's, uh, it's quite amazing, and actually amazing that there's not more stuff happening there on a on a daily basis. Almost, uh, there were more conversations between the rescue supervisor and the tower, clarifying the plan at fifteen oh seven due to lack of awareness between tower personnel. Some communications were recorded on radio and telephone, but cell phone discussions between rescue and tower personnel were not recorded causing gaps in the investigation. So it made it hard for going back and see who talked to whom and uh, what was said and agreed on. Uh, To add to the confusion, because they were going to respond from the new fire station, therefore they would not be notified or called out on the usual tower to station alarm system. The rescue supervisor would activate the vehicle sirens at the start and at the end of the ETR. The supervisor was in rescue seven, that's the pickup, last in line of the ETR with rescue three, that was the 4x4 Panther, uh, rescue one following the 6x6 Panther, and rescue seven, the Nissan pickup third. According to the photos of the incident, and I think we will post some of these on yep. uh, on uh, Facebook and, and our um, social media there. Uh, according to the photos um, of the incident, rescue three, the smaller 4x4 RF, had a significant lead on Rescue 1, the much heavier 6x6 RF, and Rescue and Rescue 1, that uh, traveling supervisor. Rescue 2, 4, 5, and 6 were on the old fire station, not participating in the ETR. And, that, and the point there, Dirk, is that the, the guy leading it, the supervisor, he was way behind. He was way behind, and the other guy was way off, yeah. If he was radioing for permission, it would have been not at the right time. Right. It didn't happen. Yeah. So at fifteen ten, the rescue supervisor activated the siren of rescue seven to start the second ETR from the new fire station. This was radio to the tower surface controller. All radio traffic from rescue units was coming from rescue seven, the last unit in the line of responding apparatus. At uh, fifteen ten forty, uh, the tower aerodrome controller authorized the LATAM A three twenty N aircraft cleared 
for takeoff on the main runway. So while this exercise is going, there's still air traffic going, right? At uh, 15, 10, 52, so 10, 12 seconds later, the surface controller observed through binoculars and informed the rescue supervisor that they were inside of the taxiway. This was incorrect, but the rescue supervisor did not reference or clarify this error. At 15, 11, 30 seconds, the aircraft captain observed a vehicle moving rapidly from the right onto the main runway. At 15, 11.24, which is going back in time. Well, I'm kind of confusing there. <laughs> it Sorry. was observed uh, in the post-incident review to tower videos. The aerodrome controller and supervisor were observing the movement of the rescue convoy on the access road until the movement of collision, or the moment of collision. So at 15.11.33, the collision occurred as Rescue 3 was leaving the access road and making the turn onto the main runway. Note the new fire station and access road to the runway, besides each other, was quite a distance from the old control tower located across two runways and the old terminal parking ramps and buildings. Approximately 1.5 kilometer line of sight. So again, there's some other photos on social media. Yeah, so they couldn't really tell where they were because they were so far away. And it comes out later, the controllers had never visited those areas. They didn't They didn't know what the lay of the land looked like. Which is interesting. It strikes me odd that the supervisors at the tail end is, is to me, having your fastest vehicle get to the scene and do a, even a momentary size up would have benefits. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think you would lead and then pull up. There are people on the ground. There's active fire. There's a fuel spill here. You know. Well, you want like, that command of where to approach, which way to approach, yeah. right? But but no, he's tail end Charlie behind the yeah. slowest guy. Like that just yeah makes. I I don't understand if that's standard practice or it was just for the ETRs. I'm not sure which. They don't really get into that, do they, Paul? No, no. I, it'd be interesting to find out. I mean, that's what happened in San Francisco, right? The the uh, airport crash truck drove over uh, a passenger. It can happen. Um, yeah. yeah, because there's no guiding. I mean, typically when you're working in, you know, there's no backing up, no reverse. Like that's typically training for ARF drivers is you don't back up. You only drive forward. So never put yourself in a place where you have to back up because right. you can't, you can't see behind you. But here you're driving into the middle of a crowd, literally. If yeah. everything's going properly, they've yes. disembarked. You're driving into the middle of a crowd. Right. Okay, so the aircraft uh, was weighing 61,642 kilograms and it was traveling at a speed of 243 kilometers per hour when the impact occurred. Rescue 3 was traveling at 72 kilometers an hour. The other rescue units uh, were traveling at approximately 64 kilometers an hour, so quite a bit slower. The pilots of this plane and other immediately contacted tower to inform them of the collision and fire. Control tower activated the crash alarm rescue two and three, which were in the old fire station responding immediately to the burning aircraft. The local municipal fire department was also notified. The fire was contained by 1515. I'm uh, just trying to go back to, for the timing here. So within it was like three minutes, yeah. three and a half minutes. Yeah, it was contained. Um, the evacuation and treatment of the passengers has was uh, beginning. Uh, rescue four was directed to the burning aircraft and rescue five and rescue seven attended the scene of the collision to treat the firefighters in rescue three. 
Two firefighters showed signs of immediate death, and the remaining firefighter suffered serious traumatic injury. He was extricated and transported to a hospital. They went all pretty fast, right? They took yeah. a turn, and they're right in the way there. Yeah, so. and I mean, 60-some thousand pounds at 240 kilometers per hour into a truck. I mean, and it hit the engine. It ripped the engine right off the plane. We'll put some pictures in the in the yeah. social media feeds, but uh, it was a terrific impact. So we're going to look a little bit at ICAO provisions, you know, basically regulations. And uh, these... these uh, are really directed at you know how traffic moves around on an airport, which of course is fundamentally what happened here. Um, so drivers of vehicles that are operating or intend to operate in the maneuvering area. So the maneuvering area is a term that comes up quite often, but I guess this is areas where aircraft could be, so mm -hmm. taxiways, runways, that ramps, kind of things. Yeah. Ramps, yeah, hard pans. Um, anyway, should um, intending to operate in the maneuvering area must refer to the air traffic control um, for the safety related parts, must must refer to air traffic control for the safety related parts of the instructions transmitted by voice. So that's a kind of a garbled transmission is, yeah, uh, translation right. there. But, but basically what they're required to do is they're required to confirm with air traffic control what the safety instructions are. And so instructions like, I, I, I wish to enter, uh, you know, you may be told, where to enter, you have permission, you must hold at a certain distance, crossing or operating on, you're allowed to cross or operate on any operational runway or taxiway. So the, so the surface controller basically provides permission to the driver of these vehicles to be in the places they're gonna be. And I guess the, uh, the thinking there is, is that without that permission, you shouldn't be there and they don't think you are. So the traffic control at the aerodrome, which is the airport, traffic in the maneuvering area um, the moment of pedestrians, the movement of pedestrians and vehicles in the maneuvering area will be subject to authorization from the control tower. So personnel, including the drivers of all vehicles, are required to obtain clearance from the control tower before entering any of these maneuvering areas. Even if such authorization exists, like pre-exists, entry into the runway or runway strip or any change in plans, I guess, or direction of your authorized operation will be subject to a specific reauthorization from the control tower. So if, you, if you're driving up and you're going on a certain taxiway and you suddenly decide, no, I need to go down another direction, you need to communicate that request for a change permission. So if you don't have permission, so you can see where there might be some delays. And when you're at airports and you're in the aircraft, you often see vehicles traveling and then stopping in the middle of nowhere and you're sitting what's he doing you know counting the birds no he's waiting for permission to cross or to move yeah or yep, to yep. seed or whatever but i remember this right from when i started out as a medic in 82 we would go up to the airport and, and get people off the airplanes or air ambulances yeah. or whatever. And, and we were always taught that you can't go on the apron without permission. We didn't have a radio to the tower. So there was always an escort vehicle. And yeah. they said, like, I don't care what happens. You never, ever, ever, ever go on the airport without yeah. your escort. Even if yeah. it's a, a plane crash, yeah. you wait for an escort. Yeah. Bad uh, things can happen. Yeah. So when the rescue vehicles left the fire station and enter into these areas where the aircraft are, maneuvering areas, 
they pass into the jurisdiction of the air traffic control tower, the surface controller. These vehicles must carry radio communications equipment that's two-way communications, and through which all of their movements can be constantly subject to the orders of the air traffic control tower. So fundamentally, that's what we're just talking about. And, and I remember going to the airport, working with my brother-in-law, uh, riding along with them as they went and did training. And uh, yeah, I mean, every time they moved, they were on the radio going, you know, red five to tower. We want to cross this taxiway or this runway or whatever. Yep. Granted or hold here or whatever. I mean, it was just general practice, but we see in the operations here when we recited those three or four exercises that not all the trucks were calling in. Sometimes they weren't at all, or only one would call in for the other two. So it's right. really odd that this that this was happening. Right. But it goes back to Dirk's comment earlier. It says, imagine being in the control tower and keeping track of all of these things going on at once. And uh, But you'll also notice they work two-hour shifts, right? Mm -hmm. So it's got to be mentally exhausting. But they have these, you know, methods of keeping, you know, they actually teach uh, air traffic control in Edmonton, I think, at uh, Grant McEwen or something. And uh, one of my firefighter friend's son is an air traffic controller. Yeah. He took the training. It's one of my favorite video games that I play on, online on the computer sometimes is uh, air traffic control. Yeah. Not everybody makes the grade. I was just going to say it's a tough test. Like, it's tough to get in. Yeah. You have to be very analytic and uh, yeah, well organized. And well, oopsies. Well, let's, let's have brain, that's for sure. It's like yeah. on the phone. <laughs> oopsies have consequences. Oh, yeah. Deadly consequences, absolutely. Uh, findings from the investigation. So it kind of goes in two parts. Uh, first part is sort of findings that they found. And then the last part is the conclusions. Uh, and we'll just uh, kind of rip through these here. But uh, the incoming rescue supervisor did not receive information about the programming of this second ETR uh, from his tower, general tower coordinator or the regular supervisor. So that they remember they had a shift change and they didn't get uh, didn't get informed this was going to happen. The, the shift supervisor controller, so that's the, the head controller on duty, did not adequately supervise that the personnel on duty were properly informed and prepared to direct from the new from the new station, which the controller didn't even, I mean, they knew where it was, but they had no idea the lay of the land over there. And that's the surprising thing, because the first one was like, they did the old, the old, the old, the old, and then when it really comes down to it, now this is the new station, half of the guys didn't even know what was going on. But yep. if you go back and look at the timeline, I, I think the exercise commenced one minute into the shift change. Yeah, yeah. So, so you really didn't give the guy much time to say, hang on a second while I look this up. Right. <laughs> like it was yeah. like, okay, I've just sat down, my, my tea cup's nice and warm, and what, there's an exercise? <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 where? New fire station, where is that again? Two kilometers away. Yeah. But then on the other hand, when you think about it, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's a it's a live airport. There's like planes going, but on the other hand, do you have to be prepared for an exercise to to make it more realistic? Well, yeah, that's always the question, right? Is it's an exercise, which is fine, and you know it would have been fine if they would have radioed in and said, "Hey, uh, rescue three, we're going onto yeah. the runway," and then people would have went, "Whoa, what? Hang on a minute, I just told the so, plane to go." Yeah, so it yeah. wasn't so much the, the tower personnel that screwed up let's put it that way it yeah. was it was it was the guys in the trucks that didn't let them know that this is going yeah, on but don't forget they said we'd like to remove those nice traffic cones that allow us to get onto the runway please yes sure no problem uh they didn't know where the cones really were 
and they and they address this in the in the conclusions uh, a little later. Uh, adequate supervision. They talk about uh, then the rescue team supervisor who had not participated in the initial meeting where the ETR was authorized uh, was uh, tasked by the general rescue supervisor, so the head guy on the in the pickup, uh, to communicate with the tower to coordinate the best time slot to execute the exercise. Didn't didn't happen, right? It was just like tell us when we can go, and that was missed. Uh, just before two o'clock, they talked on the phone uh, with the intention of coordinating the most appropriate time slot. However, the communication turned out to be both limited and imprecise. Apparently, he was not clear about the general concept of the exercise, and this is reflected in the answers he gave to the shift the controller shift supervisor, who could not clearly grasp what was going on. I've read the phone log, and I can't make it out either. Like they 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 talked. Hi, mate. How you doing? It was very casual. How you doing today? All that kind of stuff. But then when the, the critical information came, there was a misunderstanding and they didn't seem to dig into that misunderstanding. It was kind of kind of unique. Uh, they generated basically an erroneous interpretation of what was going to happen. Uh, they, they attributed this to an overconfidence of the shift supervisor controller prevented him from evaluating the possible dangers that could arise evidencing that he had a complacent attitude towards the situation. Uh, you know, and you do get that a little bit with the controllers because they're busy doing their job. They're busy getting people out, getting people in. And then the, the pesky rescue guys who, you know, we do have a bit of a reputation for being prima donnas where, you know, we got stripes and shoulder flashes and, and flashing lights and stuff. And, and so it, it, sometimes there is a bit of an annoyance factor between controllers and emergency services um, because, we, you know, it's never going to happen. We don't need you anyway. You can't do anything, and you're just bogging, bugging us. So I've, I've, I've experienced this uh, in, in, in airports. Which is horrible. <laughs> it, it shouldn't. Is. It is. <laughs> that's that's the place where it shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> Not just like fire to firefighters and an alarm call. Here we go, another alarm call. Right? Yeah, well, that that's number five here, right? <clears throat> uh, talk about the coordination of the tower uh, was lacking. Uh, attitude reflect a, a mock overconfidence in uh, prior planning. Uh, but again, that was the old one. It, it sounded like the old system worked well because they've been practicing it for so long, right? And uh, so the thing is, like, which uh, the prior planning was overconfidence and which could be described as a state of complacency on part of the emergency service staff. And that's what you said, Paul. It's kind of like they want to do their stuff and we come in there, brr, yeah, we know what we're doing, right? And, uh, well, obviously they screwed that one up. So there was also problems in the control tower too. So, you know, the, the controller supervisor, the shift supervisor, the control tower, he understood that the, 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 they call this the convoy rescue vehicles, but there's really the three vehicles, right? So these, the rescue vehicles would begin its movement from the new fire station, which is near the new control tower, not near the existing control tower that was currently being used. It was like, I think you said, what, a kilometer and a half away, yeah, Paul? Yeah, yeah. A considerable distance. So you try and see what a vehicle is doing from a kilometer and a half away. You know, good luck for you. Um, and you'll see from the photographs that it's not perfectly flat there. There's always some curvature, right? Um, they would be moving through the various taxiways until they reached the main runway. So this is the, the uh, shift supervisor's understanding. According to his understanding, drivers would then request authorization to enter the flight runway 
and this authorization would be granted, but only if air traffic permitted it at the time. Obviously, you don't get on the runway where there's active aircraft landing or taking off. He transmitted this poor perception of the exercise to his staff on ship. So clearly, staff, this, there's going to be an exercise. You know, it's going to happen. You know, when they get to these points, they'll let us know if they need permission or not. And if it's clear, let them go. Yep. I'm paraphrasing yeah. here, but no, no, absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I paraphrased a bunch of this stuff from the report so that's too. A so slightly different concept from the rescue guys. Yeah, clearly. At the time of the exercise, some of the aircraft taxiways were still blocked by fencing that restricted the circulation of vehicles and personnel towards the primary taxiways and the main runway. Uh, the, the, they delimited the construction area of the airport maneuvering area from new to old. The only route available to access the main runway, uh, the main taxiway or runway, was through what they call Vehicle Service Road 4. It was a vehicle access road, and that was from the new fire station to get to the taxiway uh, where the convoy was supposed to travel. It did not have a direct paved connection with the runway, but nobody knew that. Uh, the, the air traffic controllers were unaware of how they were coming because of that lack of, of planning, pre-planning beforehand, and, and just general knowledge. And the expectation that, well, when they got close, they would call in on the radio, right? So clearly nobody did a dry run on this. This was the dry run. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm in a slow speed dry run. <laughs> yeah. And the next point along the same lines is just a lack of communication or miscommunication to the shift supervisor controller received a call from the general rescue supervisor through his cell phone, which was not recorded because the communication was made between cell phones and was not well, recorded off the uh, was not recorded in the records of the tower. So the tower doesn't know that these two guys are talking to each other. According to the regulations, all communication with the tower must be made through a landline or cell phone connected to the tower. In this case, the shift supervisor controller should have ensured that the proper procedure was followed, and it wasn't. So the control, the, the tower didn't know what these two guys were talking about. This was sort of a factor in the Shirley Towers incident in the UK, where the two firefighters died. There was several transfers of commands and on-scene arrivals and stuff that were done via cell phones. The, the chiefs and stuff were phoning dispatch on their cell phone because they couldn't get through on the radio. Uh, because they had just changed systems or something. But it led to the failure of the transfer of command and also the awareness. The other guys don't know what's going on because you're talking privately. Uh, yeah. Whereas if it's on the radio, everybody knows what's yeah. happening. And it's, so, it's not logged into CAD unless unless right. the CAD operator decides to type something in and exactly. maybe paraphrases something. So it's not yeah. recorded on your on your voice. And nobody can intervene. Like if you hear something that's not right, yeah. you would say something. But if you don't even hear it, you, yeah, you don't know what's, what's going on. Yeah. But as we've heard previously, even when stuff was in error, the supervisor in Rescue 7 didn't intervene anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, clearly was focused on something else. So the, uh, the uh, rescue supervisor um, summoned the firefighters. Uh, so they had a meeting um, before they went into this exercise. And he informed them, uh, you know, amongst other things, that what the convoy's travel route would be specifically indicated that they'd be leaving from the new fire hall and uh, they would head through this vehicle service road for access to the taxiways and then continue towards the main runway. 
So if, if, you, if, if you look at the plans of this, it looks like this going through VSR4 was a bit of a detour. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's the plan and, and that's what they were gonna follow. So the firefighters knew what they were gonna be doing. Yeah, and the big difference here is that they were going, did they, were they going on the runway? And that was, that was never very clear, uh, you know, to, to many of the people because most of the previous ETRs didn't go on the runway. They just followed the taxiway down right. to the end of the runway. You still need permission on a taxiway, but the consequences are not as severe as being yeah. on the runway. I would say the risk is lower. Yeah, the risk is a lot lower. Yep, you're right. The uh, the air uh, the airport aircraft firefighter who was driving the second rescue vehicle, rescue one, uh, that participated in this second ETR, expressed that. That's the six by six. Yeah, the six by six. Right. Expressed during his interview uh, after the incident that, in his perception, the authorization to enter the flight flight runway was granted and coordinated with the tower by the general rescue supervisor, just as it was done during the first ETR from the uh, main the new fire hall. Yeah, and the shift supervisor controller and uh, and the controllers of the outgoing shift from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. did not provide any information about the scheduling of the second ETR with the controllers of the oncoming shift. So there's a lack of communication right there. So the uh, rescue supervisor contacted the surface controller. So this is the guy in the control tower who, travel, who coordinates... Um, surface traffic and uh, this this uh, contact came at uh, 1503 52 so almost 1504 hours that's four minutes into the shift to request authorization to remove uh, traffic cones in order for them to carry out this exercise so the traffic cones were were up obviously to provide a warning to vehicles uh, who were going to cross whatever point they were at uh, and without specifically indicating where these cones were on the ground the surface controller asked him on two occasions to indicate his location and never clearly received a reference from the rescue supervisor. Yeah, and the phone log shows it. And, and it's like he did never get the answer, but he didn't pursue it either. It's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he's um, busy, man. We got work too. And there was evidence that doesn't come up. We don't talk about it here. There was lots of evidence of overwork and overtime shifts and not enough staffing and stuff like that that was going on. The surface controller managed to locate the general rescue supervisor through the use of his binoculars and granted him authorization to approach to a distance of 90 meters from the runway access, the, the access, the center of the runway, and remove this, the safety cones. However, he was not aware, due to ignorance of the programming of the second ETR, which, by allowing the removal of the safety cones, was then opening access to the main runway. This condition reflected a state of overconfidence of the surface controller, which would have originated from overconfidence, resulting in a decrease of his situational awareness. That's the good old Dr. Rich Gassaway situational awareness and, and, and how that, and especially in times of stress and high stress jobs, that's why he's going all over the country teaching situational awareness to operators and firefighters. And so, so obviously the controller never imagined that they'd drive out onto the runway without permission. Right. Well, that's I exactly. I wouldn't yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, that's the next point too. The shift uh, supervisor controller, minutes before the second ETR began, informed the surface and uh, aerodrome controllers that the convoy would go from the new fire station to the waiting point on the taxiway located near the end of the runway 34. In addition, he stressed to the surface controller the importance of instructing the convoy to stay off the runway as a precaution. 
And then depending on the existing traffic, the authorization would be given or granted to enter the runway. So they were supposed to stop. And as you said, Denise, like you see these cars in the middle of nowhere just suddenly stopping for no reason, but everybody has a reason there. So they should have just stopped and wait for clearance. Right. So the rescue supervisor began the exercise at 3.10 p.m. Again, 10 minutes into the shift by activating the siren on his vehicle which was what they were going to use because the new station didn't have all its alarm system set up and communicated via the surface frequency on his radio that there was a fire at the end of runway 34, obviously training fire at the end of runway 34, which is the active runway. Then he proceeded to remove, to move the rescue convoy without requesting the tower for express authorization to enter the flight runway. As was stipulated, he was required to do by regulations and by the airport procedure manuals. The surface controller, upon realizing the location of the rescue convoy, did not follow the protocol established in the airport regulations for the initial authorization, which indicated communicating. Furthermore, he did not request the general rescue supervisor to comply with said instructions. So they didn't, they saw them moving, but because of the unawareness maybe of where they were and early in the shift, they didn't call them up and say, hey, where are you guys going? They just assumed it was all, all kosher. Yeah, and then the access road that uh, VSR4 uh, where the convoy of the rescue vehicles moved during the uh, second ETR was not mentioned in any of the radio communications made by, the, made by the rescue coordinating personnel. So again, nobody knew where they were and what they were doing. So to compound everything that's happened up until now, authorization to enter onto the active flight runway was never requested by the rescue personnel and was not authorized by the control tower, either before or during the exercise. So nearing the end of these findings uh, here, the absence of any joint planning between emergency services and tower controllers for the execution of this second ETR was observed. There's a lack of coordination prevented by the early identification of possible risks and their proper management before carrying out the exercise. You got to think things have changed since then. Yeah, well, I hope. Well, hopefully. Here's, here's another point that, that's mind-boggling. Uh, the training and training program for rescue personnel has some deficiencies since it does not include the teaching of fundamental courses such as prevention of runaway incursions, procedures for executing ETR, communication with flight controllers. Uh, so like all the standardized stuff wasn't taught to them. So it was all left up to the supervisor, right? Yep. So the individual driver couldn't even make a decision because they didn't know what was going on. And they weren't familiar uh, familiar with the new airport infrastructure either. So this is uh, there's another podcast that's called Disastrous History, mm -hmm. and they look at various big events. Uh, it's quite good, and they did one on the uh, BP Horizon uh, uh, rig fire and oil spill and stuff. And it, it, BP, uh, the whole all the organizations that were working on the on the platform was a lack of training and exercises. And it's the same stuff here. Is they, they it was all on the job, you know. Uh, me see you do kind of training and uh, and that's why they didn't they didn't shut the rig down they didn't activate the emergency system they didn't activate the alarm system they were all some people were afraid to it's like oh no we're never supposed to touch that right and it's just a lack of training and it's the same thing we see here uh, yeah so this I uh, just to remind our listeners this happened 
in November 2022, a yeah. year ago. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. At a civilized, large metropolitan airport. Yeah. Right? With the a, largest with a career in South America. Career staff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's you. You gotta wonder. Like, they, I mean, there's still a first, second, third world. But for air traffic, you think all these international rules and regulations and the common language and all this stuff that this should not happen. Completely. But then again, it's a construction phase, right? And then they're phasing from the old to the new. Yeah, yeah all so, these factors. But I mean, anytime we see multiple firefighter fatalities, usually it's a communication slash leadership command issue. Uh, you know, and it just over and over, if you're going to, if more than one person, I mean, oftentimes when one person is is killed, but definitely we see multiples, it's usually yeah. a, a, but, a comedy of errors. But, but how many times in fatal incidents is communication, or I should say more properly, lack of effective communication, either the number one, number two, number three, fundamental underlying cause, it's always at the top of the list. Always, yeah. always. I like this uh, last one here. Yeah. So the uh, finding number 21, and this astounds me also, but keep in mind it was, these were older vehicles. It was found that rescue vehicles R1 and R3, um, which were both uh, Panther vehicles. Mm -hmm. So one was a four by four, one was a six by six. So rescue three was the one involved. Um, that were part of this exercise had basic lighting systems that limited their visibility uh, for view from the uh, control tower. So I guess by basic lighting systems, they're referring to just standard fire department type vehicle. So not ones that, you know, have, have a, you know, an up and down and side by side to side, like you see in aircraft, um, you know, warning uh, lights on vehicles. It, and so for observation from the tower at the service road intersection, when they were observing the vehicles, um, the vehicles tended to blend in with the surrounding topography. And uh, it made it difficult to detect the vehicles that were in transit on the road. Yeah, so fire truck. So visibility from the old tower wasn't good is what they're saying. And the lighting systems didn't contribute to visibility. So they should have basically they should have moved to the new tower and run the exercise from there. Right. But right. clearly they were used to operating on a much smaller footprint mm -hmm. and it probably wasn't a big issue then, but now suddenly this airport went from, how much bigger was it, Paul? Like uh, 10 times the size? Nine, like, yeah, yeah. Nine, nine million to, or eight, two million to nine million. Yeah, yeah. so like vastly larger. Mm -hmm. And certain things obviously weren't keeping up. And emergency lighting in... Other countries, I mean, even even in Europe, uh, if you compare emergency lighting in Europe to emergency lighting in North yeah. America, there's a Not vast difference. Europe yeah. is Europe is adding a lot more lights in the last yeah. ten years or so. Yeah. Uh, but you know, and in North America, maybe we have too many lights. Yeah, I'd but, say. But uh, you know, uh, if they just bought the basic international crash truck package, it probably had like four beacons on there, one yeah. in each corner, and yeah, about this big. Yeah, just, you know, a few inches. In 2012, uh, just when LEDs were starting to really get going, so they might not have been, might have been strobes, uh, you know, so. Um, yeah. The message here is the guys in the tower only had a vague idea of where these guys were yeah. and what they were doing. 
The uh, contributing factors, we'll just breeze through these here. Uh, a briefing meeting was not held after the first ETR from the new station between emergency services and the controllers to determine any errors or deficiencies or discrepancies, missing errors, the probable cause and contributing factors, procedures in the development of the exercise, so poor planning basically, uh, allowed analysis and provision of improvement actions which didn't happen before the second ETR. Number two, the acceptance without observations by controllers of the rescue proposal to carry out the ETR from partially implemented facilities in the testing phase located in new areas of the, of the areas of the airport, which had not yet been officially handed over to the airport control was a contributing factor. There was no meetings between emergency services and tower personnel for the identification of hazards, risk management, and mitigation actions inherent to programming and execution of ETRs from the new areas and facilities of the airport. And I get that. I mean, uh, I don't know how many times, you know, the, the new area of town or the new piece of equipment, let's go try it out. Uh, the training in Texas, we haven't done that one yet, where the, uh, the aerial ladder, they were training on a building and the platform and they caught the edge of the building with the with the platform when they were going to descend and ended up uh, a brick on the on the crown molding on the building failed that's where the aerial was caught then the aerial bounced back and the four people two people were ejected from the platform maybe all four uh, and were killed uh, no safety belts and a high risk training maneuver because hey we got a new truck and why no safety belts? Because they were still on the old truck because it was in service, you know. So we're all we fall into this trap of hey, let's try out the new thing before we before we uh, learn how to operate it. Uh, it's a, definitely a guy thing. Hey, I can do this. Here, watch. Um, no meetings. Uh, not having a joint meeting between emergency services to plan it would have allowed participating personnel to know more clearly the concepts and the details. Uh, and of course, as Denny mentioned before, failure to provide adequate training to emergency personnel to familiarize them with the location, designation, and operational functioning of new taxiways and routes, uh, incorrect application of the principles of aer aeronautical communication. This one blows me away because that's always standard. You always do it. So how come these firefighters at this airport haven't been doing that? That, that was a a question is why aren't they calling in to get onto a runway or a, a taxiway? Um, they didn't notice, of course, that when they removed the cones, the only route access was being released into direct travel on the runway. Um, just kind of scanning over these here. Uh, and it was two minutes before its execution, they learned about it. It's like, okay, we're doing this. And I think you guys talked about that. Uh, so that was, these were all the factors that were were contributing to this triple fatality. Not only that, uh, 22 people from the plane ended up in, in hospital and, uh, you know, the panic and the, 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 their lives are, are, are forever changed by having to jump out of a burning plane uh, because of the lack of coordination of people that we assume are responsible for it. Not to mention the pilots. Yeah. Basically. Killed the two, the three firefighters, right? Then you yeah. got to live with that. Even though, I mean, it was not their fault, but they're dealing with trying to save the airplane, save the passengers, save the crew, and kill three firefighters. So that's kind of... Well, the pilots are really the heroes here. They managed to yeah. recover a plane that was doing, what they say, 240 kilometers an hour. Yeah. And, and they must have been pretty close to the no-go point. 
you know. They, oh yeah, they, they were. They were. They. they, they mean, were. all of a sudden they see this fire truck. Can you imagine? The Three seconds they had. Yeah, if seeing this and they're like, oh, I can't do anything about it. Yeah, he's right? not going to, is he? Yes, he did. Right. Oh my God, what now? Yeah, yeah. And then to live with that laughter is that you know I I can't do anything about to stop this. What is happening? Remember uh, one of our uncles, Denny. I don't know if you ever talked to them. Uh, uh, um, not Harry. Harry, who was a, a train engineer. Yep. Um, and uh, not Harry, but Johnny was. And yep. Johnny's uncle was, and I remember them as a kid talking about uh, driving the train from uh, from Montreal to Toronto. They had a bullet train for a while or something, and they talked about how many people and cows and stuff they killed, and they said it was just the worst feeling in the world. You, you see this, you know, whatever on the tracks, and you can ab- do absolutely nothing about it. You, you can stop, but it's a mile down the road, and, and then having to live with that was terrible. Well, I tow a travel trailer, and sometimes I see Honda Civics do completely <laughs> dumb things in front of me, and and I just look at them and I go, "Listen, bud, there's no way yeah, <laughs> I can do anything good, about it." <laughs> one of my good friends, I coffee with every few weeks, and he's a truck driver. He hauls propane or butane, and uh, he just shakes his head and goes, "Like, sorry, uh, there's nothing I can do. I'm keeping this thing upright and on the road." Yeah, uh, wave as you go under. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Edit that out. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good stuff, you guys. Uh, thanks again for listening to another emergency traffic podcast. We do appreciate your interest and hope that you find these interesting and informative. Uh, give us a star, a thumbs or a like up, a thumbs up on whatever app you use. Uh, also, you can follow us uh, on um, Twitter, Podcast Traffic, uh, or Facebook page, the Emergency Traffic Podcast. And uh, we'll post uh, some pictures and, and layouts and stuff on our on both those social feeds when we release this podcast. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay safe for sure. And don't be complacent. Yes. What was it? The uh, NYPD Blue and the sergeant in the briefing every morning, he would, you know, like, be safe out there or something. Be safe out there. <laughs>